0: All right, good morning, all you cafe Bitcoiners. Morning, Peter. Good morning, Tomer. Good morning, Jacob. All y'all out in the audience today. It's another bright and sunny day in Bitcoin. All right. We're going to get rolling here. If I fall asleep, it's because I was up all night. (laughs) <laughs> my dog had a surgery and uh, yeah, it's not doing that great, but we'll see how it goes. Anyway, um, enough of that nonsense. Our mission for this show is to provide the signal in a sea of noise and teach the other 7 billion people on this planet why there's hope because of this bright orange feature that we call Bitcoin for today's show. We're going to be covering the latest in Bitcoin news. Later today, we have Nazar Khan. He's the co-founder and COO of TerraWolf. That is a uh, company that's doing mining using nuclear energy. (laughs) How cool is that? All right. Also,
1: good morning, Ian. Hey, good morning, Alex. Good morning, everybody.
0: Shout out to Brady Swenson in the audience.
2: Sorry about your dog, Alex. That's uh, always that's always tough to go through with uh, with a member of the family. It's all good.
0: She's she's uh, been around a minute. She's fourteen, and oh, she's a yeah. blue healer. And she's smart as hell. Holy cow, she's really smart. So, hopefully, we'll have her around for a couple more years at least.
2: So, I'd like to give a shout out to Stack Chain and uh, anybody that has been on the Stack Chain has stacked some sats there. Just want to thank you all. Today is the anniversary of Stack Chain. 18th of July, 2022 was when uh, uh, Arizona Hoddle uh, first posted and really that wasn't the creation of stack chain uh, bob posting on top of him and then uh, seven nobody posting on top of bob that was the creation of the stack chain so i i just want to say to anybody in the audience who has has been there thank you and that you know find community uh, you will stack way more Sats in community than you will alone. You will also learn way more in community than you will alone. Um, whatever that community is that you that you gravitate to, be it Cafe Bitcoin or simply Bitcoin or the Council of Autism, um, you know, or or Stack Chain or any community that is bitcoin only uh, i would highly suggest becoming involved building um and doing doing what you do there stack chain's a funny game all you have to do is play everybody wins and um you know it's just uh it's just been a crazy ride this last year we stacked we stacked the bottom i mean we stacked the fuck out of the bottom (laughs)
0: Yeah, man. I think that's about right. I think you're about right. Although we're getting a little bit of a pullback today, it's just dipping slightly below 30. So, you know what to do. I don't need to tell anybody in this room. Everybody's, uh... yeah, does the thing. Uh, I want to shout out, by the way, to rustin if he's around i don't know if he's in the audience or not i I can't see him right now but mm, that most recent simply bitcoin clip that just went out i think it's 20 minutes long that's really good really well done uh it features joe Carlosari and others talking about what happened with ripple and the sec you know i thought it was the most bizarre thing like when that judge's ruling came out uh you have all these folks celebrating it as if it's a win and I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking to myself it sound like a win to me like I don't know why these people are so damn excited shout out to joe in the audience if you feel it coming up here
2: there's there's always two sides to a decision you know and there's always going to be 50% of the people involved in a decision that are um, not, uh, not terribly happy. So this decision is, is, you know, from what I understand, this decision is, is interesting because it's kind of a middle of the road decision. It's, it's, uh, it created some, it created a, a particular issue about whether or not a token is a security that was addressed that it's interesting because it probably didn't even need to be addressed.
0: Well, I think it's causing confusion and it might even be on purpose. And I don't think the decision's done yet. This is not the last we've heard of this. But the fact is that XRP has done $728 million worth of sales that are considered violations of securities laws and uh, there's going to be consequences for that. And like all these people that are jumping up and down like, yay, XRP is not a security.
1: Oh, man. That's just the XRP army, man. They're deluded.
0: Well, I've I've seen others doing it. I've seen Bitcoiners doing it. I've seen there's Bitcoiners who are like, yay, go XRP. And I'm like, what the fuck?
2: I think if you look at the... The the flow of money that has gone back into shitcoin since that decision that's probably um, uh, more definitive of people's sentiment than than the the armies screaming at each other, and it's so, unfortunate. And you're right, Alex. I think it does. It just uh, continues to to perpetrate this 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 environment of no clarity.
0: I, I disagree with that. I'm not suggesting that there's a, an environment of no clarity. I think in regards to XRP and whether it's a security or not, I think they've muddied the waters. But in general, I think there's plenty of clarity. I also think that the VC shitcoin world has got plenty of clarity. Like, <laughs> You know, VC funding and Web3... Projects has plummeted like seventy six percent. Their their scam, their pump and dump scam using tokens for everything. I think they're done.
2: Bitboy keeps uh, keeps putting them out. Sorry, what? Bitboy keeps putting them out.
0: Yeah. Okay.
2: He, and? Just, he just released Dubai, Dubai coin saying that you can't sell Ben coin to purchase Dubai coin or you won't get the airdrop for Dubai coin. In other words, scams on scams. Morning,
0: Dombe.
3: Morning, y'all. Yeah. Gamblers will always find a place to call home for eternity. Uh don't gamble. Don't stick one.
0: All right, we're gonna throw this thing on autopilot. I'm gonna go take a nap. Don Bay, you're in charge.
3: Sick. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, you mean that honestly, I I think Alex means it, dude.
0: I'm kind of joking mostly.
3: Okay. All right. Well, that didn't sound like his joking voice, Dom. I think
2: I, if I were, you'd run with it.
3: I had this, you know, I always keep now since a few previous incidents where I just didn't deliver like I should have and stepped in and out, you know, I keep like a playlist, like, uh, like Tom Brady, ah, that's a tough Tom Brady. Maybe I don't know if we can use him anymore for reference football references. Peyton Manning or some. Uh, I keep a playlist ready.
0: You know what I've learned in three hundred and ninety-two episodes of Cafe Bitcoin, not in ca- not counting the lost episodes. Is you know you just go with it. Like if you're as a as a Bitcoiner, I've thought about this a lot over the last year or so. Like this, playing and pretending that you're an expert and knowing things about things. The more I learn about Bitcoin, the more I realize I don't know very much. And I think personally, that's the best approach. If you want to learn as quick as possible, just stop with all that and just go in with complete humility and and be like, hey, uh, teach me stuff and get a get. You got to get the right people. You can't get around a bunch of knuckleheads and be like, hey, guys, teach me stuff. Then you're just going to be like dumb X-10. However, if you find good people uh, and there's signal, then that's going to be the fastest path to learning.
2: What do they say? If there's three smart people in the room, you'll be the
4: fourth?
0: Okay, I'm going to request Tomer and Ant to talk more.
5: <laughs> I, I keep wanting to jump in and then biting my tongue, but with an official request, I'll jump over. Uh, although I will kind of change the subject because I'm i just as confused about the XRP thing as as any as anybody. I have a hard time making sense of if anything even happened there. Uh, but I guess so Tomer, I did, Tomer yeah. if that's the case, how does that promote clarity in the space? It doesn't for me like, you know, I don't even understand what kind of judgment it was. Right. It's kind of presented as the case is over. But my understanding is it's just some something called a summary judgment. So I I just I I don't even really want to comment on it because I don't have I don't have clarity personally. Uh, There there are, as Alex points out, a couple of points of clarity, like the judge ruled that, that the judge ruled that XRP in and of itself is not a security. Which which I find very confusing, uh, but uh, he also or she also ruled that um, I don't know if the judge was a man or a woman. Actually, uh, I, they also was a woman. Okay, she also ruled that um, that some of the sales of XRP were and some others weren't, and it's a very convoluted and complicated explanation. And I don't think it's the final settlement of the case. It's just like they've been in at court for a long time. And, you know, and this is this is where we stand in kind of this intermediate spot where where it sounds like everybody's going to appeal and challenge everything, and, and it's hard to make sense of it. So that's why I, I actually don't want to talk about it because to Alex's more recent point, it's like you just got to be humble and know when you're out of your zone of expertise. And I'm really out of my zone of expertise when it comes to what what on... In that, what's going on in that trial, and and where things stand, and what the next steps uh, to be expected are. So I I kind of leave it to that. What I did want to talk about was the kind of conversations I'm having with pre-coiners and no-coiners seem to be evolving. You know, I, I, first of all, they're happening again, just out of the blue. You're seeing somebody they ask you like, "What do you do now?" and you ask them what they do now, and for me, it's impossible to for Bitcoin not to come up, and I'm not pushy about it. But people start asking questions.
2: Hey, Tomer, how do you yeah. how do you uh, differentiate between a pre-coiner and a no-coiner?
5: Uh, well, in many cases, I, I think it's a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap, and so I'm using both terms. Uh, I would say, like an extreme no-coiner who's outside the pre-coiner uh, circle, would be someone who has decided that under no circumstances are they interested in in Bitcoin. Something's happened to them and they are they're either pro Fiat or pro gold and un-per- unpersuadable. But this I think this for me is what I'm trying to get at. The spectrum of of where where I find people in conversations lately seems to have shifted significantly since two years ago. Just to pick a spot, certainly since four years ago, people are still misinformed, but they're not as badly misinformed for one. And people are curious as opposed to dismissive, and the dismissive arguments are less dismissive. You know, so as as an example, years ago, uh, the dismissal would be, "Isn't it just a scam?" Right? Or, "Won't the government stop it?" Nobody really asks me those questions anymore. They they've kind of come to accept that there's something more going on. They, their questions now are. Isn't it? Isn't it struggling to be a currency and only serving as a speculative investment, which is still an objection that needs to be addressed? But it's a very different kind of objection So the thing is just a complete scam, you know, or it's not going to work, or it, you know, it's got an Achilles' heel that's going to cause it to fail. It's like their questions are what's its application, and then. You know some even more curious people will ask about its connection to energy they've heard about that and not again in this dismissive isn't it destroying the world but what does it mean that it is secured with energy so the word is getting out right i think you know i think kudos to everybody <laughs> kudos to the show kudos to everybody who gets involved just when you meet someone who is who is not involved in this space is as obsessed as many of us uh, seem to get, and it's trick. The information is trickling out and trickling in the right direction, despite all of the FUD, despite all of the false allegations and false accusations. And and I think that I, I don't want to conclude with certainty, but I think the, the the reality is that Bitcoiners address FUD, and so FUD actually increases the awareness. You know, the New York Times covers a big thing about Bitcoin. It's all false, but more but more people hear about Bitcoin. And then gradually more and more people start to hear corrected, you know, accurate information about Bitcoin. And so like in, in, in the last month, for example, I've probably had five or six conversations with people who I hadn't spoken to in many years, like eight years or had never spoken to before in my life about Bitcoin. And it was just such a different and less frustrating experience than it would have been a couple of years ago to four to four years ago, and and these are all people who I would define as pre-coiners, people with curiosity. You know, they're not on the verge of buying, although some some might be much more interested than others. But their attitude towards Bitcoin is nowhere near as close-minded or dismissive, or and and their understanding of Bitcoin. Well, none of us have a supreme understanding of it. Their understanding of Bitcoin is not a complete misunderstanding of it. It is. It's kind of like our, yours and mine, understanding of something that we're not particularly expert at, but not terribly misinformed about. Okay, I feel like I've rambled on a little bit too long there about it, but I, it's an interesting phenomenon. and I'm curious to hear if other people are having similar experiences or experiences that contradict what I just described
3: or any experiences at all. Tomer, I'll jump in real quick and and just say, I second what you're saying uh, completely. Uh, Lynn Alden had a great thread about basically the way, what I took from her recent thread was meeting people in their territory to debate the specifics or talk about the specifics of Bitcoin. And to your point, Tomer, I believe that that territory, uh, if for those who are willing to meet people on their territory and kind of discuss things through their perspective, has shed some of the most uh, simple and inaccurate uh, perspectives of Bitcoin, like you mentioned. Um, you know, isn't this a scam? Isn't the government going to shut it down? And that's been encouraging because, you know, I had a, I had a conversation with a, a head of a chamber of commerce who's interested in 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 not only uh, helping to educate on bitcoin but adopting it in the way themselves and and the starting place of the conversation was at a much better spot than than it was let's say 2 years ago. Yeah, I think I think that
5: one other thing I'd add. So thank you for kind of reaffirming and reconfirming. And I did read Lynn Alden's thread on on this as well. I think one of the other things that so strangers to bitcoin or newcomers to bitcoin whatever we want to call them pre-coiners have have come a ways they're they're less misinformed they're more slightly more informed and they're slightly more curious and i think also two other things one is bitcoin's moved a lot further so there's a lot more things in reality to point to to say well it is mining using nuclear tech using nuclear energy right now which is clean it has this offsetting effect that allows uh, renewable and clean energy sources to be used and financed without having to rely on other forms of energy that emit uh, greenhouse gases for people who are concerned about that. Like, you know, it it, it has withstood more years of uh, of government hostility. Government is less hostile to it. So all these actual facts in reality that address many of the old uh, FUD concerns. And at the same time, we have become more expert in pointing out those realities and making the case for Bitcoin. So it's just like the conversation has moved forward in in the past two years, in the past four years considerably. And I think this is where. This is where the next tipping point builds in, right? It's it's um, it's not just this get rich quick scheme, although the discussion about price is very fascinating, people have it. There's still the did I miss it, you know, have I missed Bitcoin? Am I too late? Uh, it's too expensive now. That continues to come up. And, and when you point, you know, but again, we've got, we've got the, the point of making, well, you shouldn't put all your eggs in that basket if you're learning about it still until you, un- unless and until you have tremendous conviction. But to be on zero is a very <laughs> extreme position to take as well when you consider what it's actually addressing is the the monetary premium of real estate the monetary premium of gold the monetary premium of bonds the whole financialization of so many aspects of the of the modern economy and that its purchasing power if it succeeds even to a small degree in demonetizing to some degree these other things there's still a long runway to go in terms of accumulation so if you're if you're interested in something else that diversifies your portfolio that has high potential returns bitcoins is not game over bitcoin is still you know in the very early innings and there's obviously some great memes to share about people who regret having sold their bitcoin at seven cents when they could have held on and sold it for 14 cents or something you know something like that And you wonder where they are now um so it just it, like it's it's coming along, and uh, and I, and maybe some of it is all the fud. Like I, I don't have all the explanations as to why. Maybe it's just maturing. Maybe people are more acutely sensitive to the reality of inflation and something wrong with government monetary and fiscal policy that they're just a little bit more attuned to it. But it's far less it's far less hostile. I, I do think one of the other things that people are concerned about is where to get good information. You know, because there are so many scammers still in the space promoting altcoins and shitcoins and all this kind of stuff, uh, there's it's easier to get to clarity with people to say, "Look, the, the SEC is suing the sellers of shitcoins. Right? They're alleging that these things are securities. They're not. They're they're clarifying that they don't consider Bitcoin to be this. So you can address some of that, but it but it doesn't educate um, people, you know, quietly and suddenly. So it's like." What I'm most impressed with is not that I've got answers to people when I talk to them. It's just like the starting point is such a much further off starting point. And I had nothing to do with the starting point. So I'm seeing like the communication that's happening silently or passively, if you will, is is becoming very effective, is, is more effective. It's just softening the world up to, and opening the world's minds up is, is what seems to me to be the case. So.
2: Uh, a couple of things. One, Tomer. One of the one of the the arguments that I I, I turned that. Am I too late? Is it too expensive uh, to to get into Bitcoin? I've turned that on its head because I'll look at whoever I'm talking to and I'll say, I don't know. I can tell you for sure it's too late to get into the dollar though, and you're sitting in that you know quite happy. Um, but as, and as far as like the messaging, I've noticed. In particular, since since uh, uh, BlackRock has uh, uh, applied for the ETF, a, an extreme softening in media towards Bitcoin, um, if not positivity towards uh, Bitcoin in media. Um, you know, I watch in the background. I usually have CM, CNBC on all day long, and um, you just don't hear the 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 commentators on CNBC just do not. They they're not digging in anymore about um, you know being negative on Bitcoin and as a matter of fact um, if if anything they're being very very positive and and trying to understand uh, in their questions you know what is going on in this space and I think that you know as much as people hate to as much as people hate to uh, uh, go there. Um, Larry Fink coming into Bitcoin positively has a huge uh, positive effect on TradFi and on people like me, who were people were like me, um, because, you know, people out there are are looking for somebody to trust. And like it or not, they trust people like Larry Fink.
3: I was going to say something...
6: Uh, go ahead, Tom. I,
3: I was I was just gonna I was just gonna say that you know uh, to what Peter and Tomer were saying, a lot of people's eyes are starting to get opened on the agendas of mainstream media too, right uh, I'm gonna refer I refer to movies a lot, but you remember Godfather you know when they they knock off the uh, the, uh, the the crooked cop, you know and Michael Corleone's like, hey, we got people in the papers. You know, this is a crooked cop. They'd like a story like that. And, and, and like, um, you know, it's something that people know, but I think has become, it's come to the forefront with the drop off of like any kind of factual based journalism. I'm not saying any, cause there's some good factual based journalists out there, but a huge amount of, of the mainstream media is opinion based consumption with some kind of agenda. And so like Peter was saying, when you see think come out or someone like that and say things that are. You know, completely opposite of this agenda that I'll hand it to mainstream media. They etched into people's minds quite effectively this concept of Bitcoin dropped from all time highs to a low of 15. Success. They did that, they etched it into everyone's brain solid. FTX was one of the biggest scams ever. And you know, it's muddied in the waters and, and they loop it in with all, you know, tokens and Bitcoin success. They did that. You ask anyone on the street and they'll know like, oh, yeah, FTX was this huge scam. And a lot of these these um, stories were not 100 percent factually based in that, you know, the work was done to identify the facts. It was just to create this kind of, uh, you know, it's it's get readership. And I think people are catching on to that more. And that is also helping with some of the starting points being from a better place and learning about Bitcoin because people have accepted that the media is a tool of people's agendas in some form. And it's no longer really factually based, uh, you know, as a majority of, of stuff that comes out.
6: So I was I was going to also mention kind of what Peter was saying Um with uh, mainstream media, you know, really softening their approach to Bitcoin. But I also think that it's been, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's been kind of like a slow and steady softening. I don't think it's really, you know, one event that, that, you know, like where they just flipped, right? I've noticed, especially over the past, I don't know, two or three years, like it's been slow and steady where, you know, more and more of these commentators... Across multiple MSM stations have kind of, it seems like they're starting to get actually orange (laughs) billed and like defending Bitcoin kind of on their own uh, whenever it gets challenged. Um, And and, and I feel like that's been happening even before the BlackRock announcement, maybe a little bit more after, you know, definitely. But but yeah, I mean, yeah, the trend is clear, right?
0: All right. Here we go. Case in point. So apparently on CNBC this morning, there was a Bitcoin skeptic that went on there. And Joe Kernan's had a, <laughs> you can tell this dude's gone down the rabbit hole. He had an interesting response. Let's roll it.
7: Tom Leon earlier this, he's great, smart guy, stock analyst thinks Bitcoin's going to 200,000. So we have, you know, Kathy Wood. Um, BlackRock uh, wants to have a, an ETF, uh, Fidelity, Charles wait, wait, Schwab, wait, 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 wait. Uh, just, Paul Tudor-Jones, as long Stan Druckenmiller. Sure, sure. And just across the board, it didn't take me long to understand how the young bank could benefit from this. And I also understand the distributed ledgers. And I understand it, it was only, I, I mean, I didn't, you say you did a deep dive. And it only took me about 20 pages of the Bitcoin standard to understand that this was probably something that. Do you think black so you think so all these they, firms are going to have egg on their face? It's so it's going, a it's a democratized, going to, decentralized future of money is blocked you by BlackRock. I don't know. maybe they may I mean if 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 they think it's uh gold if they think it's you know oh, it's why I was, yeah. digital gold. Right, exactly. And that's why I was explaining the difference between uh and scarcity. No, I heard that. But and so a lot of smart people are So are it. you think it's going to zero eventually? No, that's that's like a I mean, look. Where do you it's think it's a going? story. It, I, I can't predict the future anymore than anyone else. But I you would think say it's this. going lower. Yes. Okay. It, it, do you think eventually there will not be something called Bitcoin? It's a story. It'll last as long as people believe in it.
0: Anyway, that was Ben McKenzie, I guess, the the actor turned monetary expert.
6: I mean, I guess if we all die. Then you know, maybe there would be no one left believing in it. But at the same time, I mean, <laughs> maybe there would be new people who are like, "Well, now all the all the OGs are dead, and this thing's even more scarce."
2: Stack chain's not going
8: anywhere. Doesn't it remind you of the internet um, when people were trying to figure out the internet, like Bryant Gumble and Katie Couric? Like they play that all the time. It sounds just like it. Yeah, and in 20
2: years those are going to be the clips, aren't they? That we're going to be seeing, we're going to be laughing about.
5: You know, Bitcoin Bitcoin has a way of surviving no matter how many people are believing in the story or not. Right? it's it's called it's, it's literally built into the thing. It's called the difficulty adjustment. And so if a whole bunch of people stop believing in it, it still keeps the story keeps going, and then more people come to. It. And the pattern that we keep seeing is everybody says, oh, "I, th- I thought I heard that Bitcoin died. Didn't didn't FTX blow up? Wasn't that the death of Bitcoin? Wasn't this the death of Bitcoin? Wasn't that the death of Bitcoin?" And it keeps coming back, and it keeps showing its face. And I think that's part of the underlying current that that keeps the whole thing really mo- moving forward. And all you know, all of these fundamentals are true. So I think when somebody thinks, "Oh, it's just a story." That's someone who hasn't gone down the rabbit hole or hasn't explored to see what exactly is the story and why is this story so compelling? And this is a true story, right? It's like, this is a story that's tied into reality and tied into human history and tied into physics and tied into math. It's tied into what we know and it's and it's proven. Right? It, like, it uses mathematical proofs and physical proofs to validate the ongoing nature of the story and the story itself is set in the context of a world of human beings who need to use money to create an economy and who have not yet found a perfect money. They have found flaws in all of the things that they have ever tried to use for money and it has every time led to a collapse or setback and significant setback in civilization and here we are at another moment in history where it looks like that setback is upon us and somebody's invented something and launched it in a particular way that addresses everything that we can think of that is that leads to the crisis. And so more and more people are fall are falling in love with this story and validating it and checking it. And it's no longer just some kind of myth to them. It's it's a real thing. It's legit. And that's how money's become adopted. So I, I think I think you know everything that I've been commenting on today and, and this example here too. Is just showing us where we are in history, and that we are making forward progress in history. To get people to realize, we need we need sound money, and and the only thing that we have that we can use as sound money in today's economy is Bitcoin. And it's and it is it does seem to be good enough, right? And it's got all these flavors in which people can participate in it, whether it's direct self custody on chain, lightning. Uh, e-cashments derivative instruments like it's just it's playing out and it's growing and some parts will some parts may not last as long as other parts but the core of it keeps lasting because it's designed not to die survivability is the chief engineering consideration of every aspect of bitcoin at the base layer it just it survives with little energy it survives with a lot of energy it survives against nuclear attacks it survives against government attacks it survives against anything that anyone can seem to throw at it so this story is going to be around for a long time to remark on the closing comments of the bitcoin skeptic in that cnbc clip
1: yeah i love that aspect of it though you know people have varying tolerance levels but you can only ignore bitcoin's you know survival for so long you know in my case i had laughed about it for years and you know never really dug in I missed like five years, basically, because I knew about it and could have, you know, been one of the early, early OGs, but I just, you know, I didn't take the time. I ignored it. I thought I was too smart for that. I thought it was funny money. And, you know, I didn't get off of literally square zero. And, you know, at, at some point you go, this thing just hasn't gone away. And then, you know, you have to face that within yourself. Was I wrong? And that's the fascinating part to watch.
9: Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, I wanted to give uh, my perspective not only um, as an older woman, but as somebody who was born in Silicon Valley and saw the onslaught of the changes from an agricultural area into what Silicon Valley is today. Um. The difference between um, the adoption of the uh, of the Internet uh, back then and what's happening with uh, Bitcoin and its adoption and some of the responses today is quite vastly different. Uh, it You know, I think it's easy to, to draw parallels, but there are uh, some significant changes back in the day when all we had was a world of analog, nobody knew what the internet was. I mean, we couldn't even fathom it. The majority of people didn't even know what it was. It was some sort of esoteric, you know, thing that was out there, blah, blah, blah. And um, I think the majority of people today get it. Uh, Today, we know the power of the internet. We know its power to transform the world and how quickly... That can have, happen, and consequently, I think that the the responses that we're we're experiencing across the board with the advent of, of Bitcoin um, is yes, similar, but also quite different in the sense that uh, um, there's blowback. I mean, this is the uh, this is the big Kahuna. This, this is a huge nut here. This is the whole world financial system. And everybody saw what happened to music. Every, everybody saw what happened to, to the movie industry and streaming. You know, everybody saw, you know, all of the transformations that happened with the on, onset of the, of the Internet. But, you know, the one that has held out is the is financial system. And here we are. They know it's coming. And there's a lot of fear and trepidation around it. And I think we have to be, um, for lack of a better word, perhaps, uh, we have to be compassionate around that because uh, it's what everybody has known for all of their lives. And also, let's be honest about it, there is a sense of security around the existing systems. And it's like, oh hell, another huge transformation. Now it's money. Oh my god, you know. Now it's finance. Oh my god. And of course, yes, Bitcoin is going to be blamed for a lot of it. But uh, you know, I think I just wanted to bring in that perspective that uh, this is a whole, a whole nother thing. It really is, and 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 to be sensitive about that is very important. Thanks.
0: Playful. Thanks for coming up. Dombey. By the way, I just want to quickly say we usually will observe an order of of speakers based upon who is waiting to go, et cetera. So we're going to go with that. Dombe next.
3: Yeah, Alex, I was just going to, I know you played that Ben McKenzie clip and there's, there's a lot of cheerleaders on his book right now. Something I noticed uh, just the other day and I won't get too much into it because I know we already talked institutional money yesterday, but I saw there was a representative out of Philly uh, who was kind of cheerleading Ben McKenzie's uh, book, which, which for those in the audience who don't know, he hammers crypto. But the mistake, I think, where we have an issue is that he loops in Bitcoin and doesn't give any distinction to Bitcoin, its ecosystem, the network, et cetera. He loops it in with the rest. And this representative from Philly, I think it's representative Ben Waxman. You know, he was like, hey, I use this book to inform my views on crypto. So anytime I see a, a representative like that, I go straight to the pensions. I look it up. Uh, where's it at? You know, where's Pennsylvania's pension at? you know, I remember talking to a couple of them in D.C. They, they seem to think it was all right. I didn't know this. This is a fact. Uh, the The pension just got bailed out recently. Uh, $900 million bailout from the federal government from the American Rescue Act. It was bailed out. It was It was going to be insolvent. This didn't make news. Um, I posted something just of a few articles and, and I did some fact checking and actually fact checked the articles against a post from a, a Pennsylvania state Senator and confirmed that it was true. Um, this is, uh, the, the, the description of how it got to that point had nothing to do with crypto. It had to do with the, the very, uh, the very, uh, value-based folks in the banks, regulators and lenders of, of 2007, 2008, um. And so, again, when I see stuff like that, a representative who just, you know, who represents a state or a, a district in his state that just had a legitimate federal bailout of a pension fund. They were not going to be able to pay workers through 2034 was the date. They were like, hey, we can't pay workers past 2034. They were going to have to liquidate stuff. Um, you know, I just hope that that kind of book doesn't people, you know, we talk about this all the time. They need to find Bitcoin. Uh, Ant mentioned it like he wish he would have found it earlier. We all wish we would have found it earlier. We know where it's going. We know the power of it. Um, Playful knows we all know it. And so I hope a book like that doesn't uh, prevent some of the leadership and elected spots from missing very, very obvious opportunities to take Bitcoin on as an energy partner, as a pension partner, as an investment partner. Like um, so that cracks me up when I see that. I just go, oh, my God, like. Uh, it's pretty pretty intense. So, I think you know one of the
6: really beautiful things about Bitcoin is that you're never too late to find Bitcoin, right? Or to understand it. I mean, that's kind of the point of Bitcoin is <laughs> it's a monetary system that you know gets better and better over time. Um, it doesn't leak economic value, you know, you can join it at any point and you can expect your purchasing power to continue rising over time. You might not get these outsized early adoption gains, you know, that we're seeing now because we're still, (laughs) you know, we're we're still going through a monetization phase. But even after Bitcoin is, quote unquote, fully monetized, whatever that means, right, it's still going to most likely mirror, you know, the, the productivity gains of of the of the world. So as long as the world keeps on innovating, um, as long as the human population keeps on growing, right? I mean, <laughs> to an extent, uh, Bitcoin should continue to become more and more valuable or said otherwise. I mean, the, the other way of saying that, which which might make more sense to people, because I mean, this idea, it's like, how does it keep getting more valuable? Like That, that sounds too crazy, right? Well, the other way to think about it which I think might make more sense, is everything keeps getting cheaper, right? I mean, you you innovate more, you get better technology, you bring the cost of production down, and then you match that with a fixed supply money. And then you actually start to see those efficiency gains reflected in prices, right? As opposed to continuously expanding monetary supply to try to match these productivity gains, that so you're, you know, stabilizing prices, quote unquote, right? I mean, that's, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make a gallon of milk always cost the same amount as a gallon of milk, right? But obviously, it's not quite working as as expected, right? But on Bitcoin, I mean, there's nobody in control saying, well, you know, a gallon of milk should cost 10 sats and always be 10 sats. No, we're going to continue to innovate and get better technology and hopefully bring the cost of a gallon of milk down right and you and you price it in terms of sats so far and it's only gone down i mean you know like lo- over over long periods of time prices of everything have gone down in terms of sats and there's no reason to think that that won't con- you know that that won't continue so you know there's no uh, you can't be late to bitcoin that's what i'm trying to say here right we can all we can all have have been introduced to bitcoin earlier than maybe you know the time when we officially got orange build, like when we finally realized that this is a really important and and you know pretty unique monetary protocol Uh, we all figure that out eventually but it doesn't really matter when you figure it out once you figure it out then you're you know then you're on the ride and you know like it it doesn't matter when you get on the ride the rides the ride and it's always going to keep getting better
0: by the way you can still buy three thousand three hundred and fifty two sets per dirty fiat dollar it's not too late
3: wicked i agree with what you're saying 100 percent. it is never too late to get on bitcoin i think for some of these funds that we mentioned they literally are going to run out of money at some point so for them it may be too late to get on bitcoin uh in a sense to help kind of fill gaps depending on what happens with legacy finance and the financial system as we know it that that may be the too late part is stepping off the sinking ship but like you said like, if you can still swim and tread water get on that bitcoin lifeboat and and it's still going to be there it's going to get bigger it's going to carry more people and uh it's going to be stronger
0: Good morning, 21M. Been waiting patiently. How you doing?
1: Maybe on mute.
0: Probably been listening to the show, joined the conversation, went to the bathroom. And we called on him when he went to the bathroom, but he's been waiting all this time to talk. <laughs> we'll leave him up here, just in case.
1: F2 pool just got a new block.
4: Hello? Ah. Hello? I'm Hello. So- I'm sorry for not being really attentive because i'm at the work also i'm a boomer and i'm still working and i've been in bitcoin for a long time since when it was seven cents and i dismissed it i ridiculed it and then i started to listen to bitcoin knowledge from trace Mayer, a bit a podcast that does not exist anymore but very educational and then trying to find for friends to affirm my findings around Bitcoin. It was very tough. So it took time for me until it was too late for me, quote, unquote, too late, 2017, when it was still 2,700. And I got in. But the most educational uh, source for me has been Andreas Antonopoulos, and especially Regarding this conversation we have today, the five pillars of Bitcoin. I suggest everybody go and see that one. And I am not scared at all when these ups and downs of the price go from Bitcoin. As long as I see in my note that every 10 minutes there is another block going on. And Bitcoin is unstoppable. So whoever is delaying, it's just fine. They are comfortable. They are comfortable where they are, so they just uh, don't need Bitcoin yet. Let them let, let their wealth melt down slowly, like the cash of uh, of Michael Saylor that he took care of, and uh, let their value go into Bitcoin in the near future. So everybody is, will buy Bitcoin with the price they deserve. I'm just stealing this kind of a from different sources of education. I, every time I get a question, what's up? I just answer, inflation. And they enter the conversation, so I have, I have orange peel, like 20 people in my company and friends and family, so I'm happy with my results. I've been working alone, long wolf. And I've been listening here and I keep my mood high up listening to bitcoiners which have changed my life. I don't have much to say, but anytime there is a dip, I just go where I have to go. I know the drill and I just don't think twice. That's it. I keep the minimum bare, bare amount. <sighs> Excuse my English is I'm a I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm a Boomer that I learned English here, so excuse my English, okay? But I'm a Bitcoiner in the core. I don't shitcoin. I tried once to learn what is, what are these shitcoins with Digibyte. I tried to find how can I run a node on my own. They have nothing about that. I went everywhere with shitcoin just to find out what they, they are hiding in their invention, and I found the same shitcoin theory. So bitcoin baby bitcoin no ethereum no nfts no crypto kitties, no other bullshit that might come around just focus on bitcoin and life will reward you very generously thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk to you guys you make my day every day that's how my day starts and i'm very happy to have you around digitally because we know We're living in a digital world. I
0: love you all, guys. Thank you. Wow, that was awesome. Thanks for coming up, man. Do appreciate it. Your English is great. And this guy is on the dang mission. Texas Toast, good morning.
10: Morning, fellas. I woke up a little pissed off this morning. And I don't know if it's has to do with the... Uh, there's a TikTok video going around of this guy who says the average wage at the depths of the Great Depression yearly wage was about $4,000. All right, that's depths of the Great Depression. That's what everybody was making. And then he did the thing where he adjusted it for inflation. And what what would that average wage be today? And it was somewhere around $90,000. So if you're making under $90,000, this is, I haven't done the math on this myself, but if you take this at face value, if you're making under $90,000 today, then you are making less than the average American did during the depths of the Great Depression. And so I don't know. Basically, on the, you buy, everybody gets Bitcoin at, when they deserve it um i'm more and more on that i love what you guys do but i don't know i just woke up in some kind of mood today kind of a go fuck yourself mood if you don't get it at this point i don't know what to tell you
6: so i'm trying to i'm trying to look it up right now um uh you said 4000 a year right something like that because something I, around I don't know there, yeah <clears throat> i don't know where he got that data from um but i'm just looking at 1920s in general uh, i'm looking at some other site fucking yeah i mean the site might also be fucking bullshit but like i think the, the estimate's vary pretty widely cuz the, the site i'm on right now is saying average across all industries in the 20s was you know a little bit over 1400 a year and uh, in, the, in the 30s it got bumped up to about 1400 a year so i mean the you know that estimate is quite a bit lower and the other thing to consider is you know during a great depression the low in, you know the, the low-wage workers are probably going to all lose their jobs so that's going to bring the average up right i mean the people who are going to keep their jobs are probably going to be the people who are who got higher paying jobs in general uh, i would I would maybe imagine, I don't know if that's true or not, but like I could see that being potentially, you know, affecting the the data overall. So, you know, maybe we'll go through another recession. I mean, I'm sorry to laugh there, but like, it's just a nervous laugh. Uh, all the lower uh, wage workers will lose their jobs. And then the higher wage workers might keep their jobs because they're the ones who are, you know, bringing the company the most profit, right? Like the most return on their investment. If you've got your, data scientists who are, you know, building applications that are saving the company millions of dollars and they're only getting paid, you know, six, like hundred, hundred K or something like that. Then obviously the, the business is going to keep them on while firing all the 50 K HR workers. Right. Um, so, you know, I think the stats here might be a little skewed in that way. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if average wage actually goes up if we were to enter a recession for that reason. Um, but maybe not, I don't know. I have no idea about this, this type of data, to be honest.
10: I hear you. I mean, I, but just the overall sentiment, I think is generally correct. I mean, I think we're just productivity has gotten so high that we we really don't realize and people are lulled to sleep on, you know, kind of the conveniences they're able to purchase at a seemingly low price. Um, I think it just – we do, people just don't even realize how poor they really are in terms of the grand scheme of things. So, I don't know. That was just my mood this morning. thought it would be a yeah. decent topic to bring up. I appreciate you guys.
6: I, I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. You know, people don't realize how poor they are. And I think part of that, you know, kind of lack of – realization of how poor they are is reflected in the things that they're buying. <laughs> you know, people live above their means for sure. Like you should not be buying a $6 Starbucks coffee every day if you make less than six figures. Sorry, that's just the truth. What the fuck are you doing? Brew your own coffee, bitch. You're poor. You know, like like I don't understand people. You know, it's like people living on <laughs> they get six People get six figures and they're like, I'm living paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. You look at their fucking bills and it's like, yeah, dude, you're buying three Starbucks coffees a day. You're going out and you're eating at fancy restaurants on the weekends. You know, you're going out and you're watching, you're going to fucking movie theaters every every week. You're going to the fucking clubs on the weekend. Like, what are you doing? Obviously, you're living paycheck to paycheck. You're fucking living above your means, man. Stop going out every weekend. Stop going to Starbucks every day. Brew your own fucking coffee. Stay in. Watch Netflix, man. Like you already pay that fucking monthly thing. Just Netflix and chill, bro. Don't go to the movie theaters. Just wait for it to come out on Netflix. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, people are spending way too much. That's the problem. Or and and we're all getting fucked. I mean, you know, I mean, okay. Yeah. The bigger problem is we're all getting fucked. But the lesser problem, which is affecting a lot of these, like, I'm living paycheck to paycheck six figure bros, is that they're spending too much. They're living above their means. Get a shit out of your apartment, bitch. Don't use a car. Drop, you know, go on public transportation. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's plenty of people who are, you know, debt free who are who are only making like 50k a year because they're financially responsible, or they're just you know kind of living, you know, below their means, right? Like the live below your means, man. Like if you're making a certain amount, lower your living standards until you don't spend more than you make. And then from there, try to be more productive and make more. But, like, you should never be spending more than you make. That's just – you're just going to dig yourself in a hole. You're never going to be able to get out of.
1: Yeah, and if you're having to rack up a bunch of credit card debt to live that life that Wicked's talking about, that's another big indicator that you're upside
6: down. I guarantee you that TikToker buys a Starbucks every fucking day. You could tell just by the way he looks. (laughs) Okay. Just kidding. I don't know, man. I I, I get passionate about this because, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Like, you know, I've got friends and family who live this lifestyle and and then they're poor. And you're just like, (laughs) and they have credit card debt. And you're just like, dude, how can you be buying... You know, like this frozen Wagyu beef from getting shipped from Japan when you're, you know, 15K in credit card debt. Like, how about stop buying luxury items and start paying off your credit card debt instead? But, you know, people just, they live in this fucking fantasy land where credit card debt means nothing. And you can just keep on racking up the bills and you just never pay it off. And then, you know, it all comes to a head and you... You, you get fucked, but like you know they just they live this lifestyle until until they can't and I don't know that's that's a really big problem like it's not just the money, it's literally the culture of money, which which you know like people just don't really appreciate living below their means, which I think everyone should strive for you know like if you're living above your means, I kind of don't respect you to to a to degree. By the way, I live way below my means. Man, I should be fucking fixing my bathroom right now. <laughs> I feel like I'm living in fucking you know what I'm saying? Like like my, my fucking bathtub is leaking. Like this this bitch hasn't been updated in 30 years, man. But you know, I mean I, I don't know. I've got I've got different priorities. Like I can I can handle living in a shitty fucking house, you know, for a few more years. And then maybe, maybe I'll update it, but like you know what I'm saying, like you just have to, have to make your you have to make your financial decisions and be smart about your money because you know like living on credit is just it's not it's it's really not healthy it's gonna fuck everyone,
3: yeah, that's a good point, wicked, it's a balance, right, you know, um. Dude, at work, we go to a lot of the convalescent homes and I see like, you know, elderly folks that are bedridden and and I just want to go spend all my money and just travel the world and just like save zero dollar, right? Because I'm like, holy shit, this this life is moving too fast. But that's reckless. You don't want to get into credit card debt. At the same time, you want to be frugal. You definitely want to stack sats, you know. Every time I look at a flight, I just see the cheapest seat and then find the difference between the most expensive seat. And I'm like, cool, I could stack that in sats. No brainer. Uh, but then, you know, there's a balance, too, I think, of just like responsibly getting out there, doing the things you want to do. It, it, you spend, you know, not getting into credit card debt, but spending money for an experience, even if it's a little bit excessive, knowing how short life is. Um i'm a fan but i think it's a good balance and for sure going into debt for stuff is just uh right now something super dangerous with uh the way rates are looking and how banks can just flip the script not to mention you will be more vulnerable to something like a cbdc if you're financially desperate than if you're financially sound Uh, because i can see them doing stuff like zero balance transfers with the the JP Morgan sponsored CBDC or something like that. Right. To use it. Who knows?
0: You know, you know, what you guys are saying about that, et cetera, I agree with hundred percent. However, I'm going to say that there are, there are a lot of young people out there right now who believe that there's no way that they can, move ahead without doing it. There's people who have a lot of student debt. There's people who are working their butts off. Um, and they're, they're basically, they use the credit cards for emergencies, right? But it doesn't ever get paid. It just, it just keeps adding up. And so they get a student loan. They're working whatever jobs they can to make money. And they're just trying to survive and they think that that college degree is going to be the thing that helps them get past or get to what they want. And what a lot of people are missing is, is that the math of that is what's broken and it's not their fault. You know, if, the, if the, the cost of things doubles every 10 to 12 years, you know, all you have to do is go to WTF happened in 1971.com and look at what's happened, the difference between incomes and the price of everything. Mathematically today, and I'm not trying to depress anybody or whatever. You can't just go get a job and expect you're not going to get poorer. Like it's baked into the math at this point. You have to use leverage. And. By leverage, I mean saving in a form of money that's not losing purchasing power continuously. Now, here's the most important thing: if you're in this place where you're struggling and you're in survival, and it's like you you don't you, you don't know how you're gonna how you're gonna make it, and you've got those credit cards that are slowly incrementing up over time, you feel like you're chipping away, but you maybe even you're paying a little bit more than the minimum. But it's just brutal. This is what you have to do. You have to set aside at least like a tiny amount, even if it's only $10. Like ideally, it's like 10% of your income if you can get to that, right? And you got to stack it. And I would suggest buy Bitcoin. But I mean, just do whatever you can. Like not everybody's going to agree with that. But don't spend that. Like a lot of people will save the money and then they spend it. Don't do that. Invest it. You got to leverage. And what will happen is you just go back and check that little stack and protect it over time. Every month you go back and check that little stack. And what will happen over time is, is that that will start to grow and it will change you. And this, this struggle for survival mode thing that you feel like you're in, it'll change. I promise. Trust me on this. Do it for a year and then come back. And, and I'll tell you what, I'll match you. Anybody listening to my voice, if you save $50 a month and you don't spend it, but you invest it, and a year from now you come back and say, Alex, you're full of shit, you DM me, I will pay you back the
6: money you saved. Careful now. That's uh, got a lot of listeners here, Alex. I don't know if you've got. (laughs) uh, Like,
0: uh, you know, if you're going to scam me, screw yourself. But if you legitimately do this, I just don't believe that'll happen. If you legitimately save that money and you you invest it and you don't blow it on stupid shit, a year from now, if, ha- if it has not changed how you feel about that, that's the offer.
6: Yeah, just, I mean, you don't even have to invest it, just save it, but save it in the best money there is. You know, I mean, I think reframing Bitcoin is not really even an investment. It's just money <laughs> that you yeah, can that's, save. You're right. You're right.
0: But see, th- that's the way most people think of investing nowadays they have to gamble because there's no other way. Right. But Bitcoin is a way to save in a form of money that not only doesn't lose its purchasing power, but it's mathematically limited in a way where against all other assets in the world, it will gain in purchasing power. That's the math.
2: So, when I was growing up, I was taught that uh, the the magic of compound interest, right? So as long as you're as long as you're saving and you're investing in things that are compounding over time, that you will you will get ahead. There's this this rule of seventy two. There's all these things that that those of us from the kind of pre nineteen seventy one era were were taught about money and unfortunately what nobody taught me which bitcoin has taught me which i really kind of learned which is something that i just completely fucking missed is that the power of compounding interest the magic of this works in the opposite too and our money is being devalued at this at this rate that is compounding over time and so the the rat race that that we're all looking for is trying to stay ahead of that curve somewhere somehow and bitcoin solves this it it really does this is one of the things that you know we like to say bitcoin solves this bitcoin solves that or cures this or cures that the reality is is this some this is something that it actually does cure and this is something that it, it took me a long time to really kind of for this to settle in. And, and it did, wasn't until Bitcoin, until an absolutely hard money that I was able to go, oh, that's what's going on. You know, that's the problem. The problem is the money is devaluing in and in, with, with com- it's compounding over time. And you just can't keep up with it after a while.
1: Gee, I wonder who came up with that system. Fuck you.
2: He's taking a stab at the boomers. Boomers, I'm a boomer. He's taking a stab at the boomers. So I don't think it was the boomers that came up with that system, to be honest with you.
1: No, it was they the seven her serpents, her the but most. they psyoped you into thinking it was you.
6: <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, w- one more thing I wanted to say on this topic, just of, you know, saving and living below your means and, and, and whatnot. Like I understand, you know, I think most of us up here have probably been in a financial system. It's a situation that was not favorable where we're working our ass off. We've got student loans. You've got that, you know, maybe we're still trying to low, you know, live below our means. And it's a relatively shitty life, you know, and, and it can be difficult. So I get that. Um, And I mean, one thing is to realize that, I mean, there's only so much you can really cut your costs down. There's only so, so far you can do that, right? Like you might already live in the shittiest apartment with, you know, shitty roommates and, you know, maybe you're only paying $400 a month for your shitty room, but like, (laughs) yeah. and And there's really nothing you can do to like get that, 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 that lower, right? But if that's not the case, then, you know, you can always go in the shittier fucking room, the shittier roommates and get that payment lower. I mean, and and maybe that's not the best approach because that might make your life worse. And then you might become less productive at work because you're just dreading going home to your shitty living condition, right? I mean, I've been there and I I think that's not a healthy approach. So at a certain point, you know, you, you... you kind of you you've reached your limits in terms of how low you can go in terms of paying for your living expenses. You're you know you're you're making all your own food. You're living in a you know fucking tin house or whatever. You're commuting on public transit, whatever. And then at that point, you know the, the only way out is is probably to try to get a higher paying job and that's easier said than done so i get it i understand i think a lot of it to be honest is luck i think you know and that's that's the sad truth is like most people who make it these days are are people who just got lucky um and that's probably not what everyone wants to hear but i think it's probably to an extent the truth i mean obviously the people who are lucky are probably the people who are also working hard there's probably some correlation there you work really hard and And then you get lucky and you find yourself in that, you know, that interview where you fucking just, you know, match up with your interview person and they're like, okay, yeah, this guy's cool. We'll hire him. But I think the vast majority of people, it's like, it's a constant struggle. So I get it. Um, Yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, that's, that's not really a happy note to end on. So sorry there, everyone (laughs) listening. (laughs) Like, I hope, hope you all find some luck really if that's no there's
0: i mean discipline works discipline works the savings thing works
6: yeah i mean to an extent but but again like you know if if you're not if you're not lucky enough to, to to find a job that at least covers your living expenses then you're just constantly getting in a deeper and deeper hole of debt right so like you need, yeah, but
0: here's the thing, all right. You, we all only have the ability to do what's within our own control, yeah. right? You may not be able to control whether a specific person hires you or whatever, but you, you do what you do have control over is what you do with your time, and you can either waste your time or you can spend your time making yourself better. And if you're making yourself better, I mean, that investment goes in is an investment in your mind. And, uh, you know, there's that saying, like, from the neck down, you're going to make basically minimum wage. And from the neck up, there's no limit. Invest in your own mind and uh, go from there. And then what you do control is you do control your expenses. So the two things you can do is try to make yourself better, increase your income, and then decrease your expenses. Take the delta, plow it into Bitcoin, and four years from now, measure it.
6: The mind, the mind part is a tricky one, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us on stage up here probably have above average minds, you know, like, or, or at the very least above average, you know, abilities to enhance our minds. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who just don't got it, you know, like they can try as hard as they want, but, but. You know, they're just not gonna have the minds that some other people have just naturally and that leg up.
8: They've also it's
6: it's tough, it's it's tough for those people, you know. Like there's it's it's
8: really tough. They've also just stopped teaching people how to problem solve. So, you know, I think what you are saying, yeah, what you're saying is correct. You know, some people just don't have it, right? It's in the genes, but then there's the vast majority that are just not taught how to problem solve. They're not taught how to cut expenses. I think when we say that, we say it kind of as a, you know, a big picture, but maybe some people are listening and thinking, I just can't because everything is so expensive. But, you know, Alex, you talked about habits. I I would also say, you know, along with that, it's like grocery shopping. Like I see people just you know, throwing stuff in the cart, whatever it is, it might be, you know, good nutrients, bad nutrients, good calories, bad calories, doesn't matter. They're just throwing it in there. There's those of us that actually shop the ads, right? And we only buy things when they're on sale because we can stack more sats if we're not throwing away money unnecessarily on food that is overpriced.
0: Okay. Uh I want to really quick welcome up Terra Wolf to the stage. Uh welcome. Thanks for joining us. We're gonna be shifting gears here in a little bit, talking about what terror Terra Wolf has going on. Uh I assume, I think, uh Nazir Khan, is that is that who's on the Terra Wolf handle today?
11: I'm here. Good afternoon or good morning.
0: Awesome. thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Very excited to be talking to you about what you guys are working on today. So today's discussion has been wide ranging. We talk about a lot of topics here on Cafe Bitcoin. Uh, and it just so happens we're talking about savings and investing and basically managing the the finances. And, you know, it goes, we have a very wide range of of listeners too. I mean, we have everything from young folks who are at college or, struggling or whatever, which is what we were just talking about a little bit ago, uh, all the way up to to people who are near retirement or baby boomers, uh, you know, the the entire segment of the population that controls the majority of investable assets, all the way to institutional money addressing Bitcoin. So um, just a very wide range here, and that's kind of what we were just covering just now. However, I mean that doesn't have anything to do with TerraWolf. What does excite me about TerraWolf is that you guys are doing nuclear Bitcoin mining. We had your um, one of the officers of your company on here not too long ago, uh, and it was a it was an amazing discussion. Uh, the fact that you guys are able to secure power at the prices that you're able to secure it for mining purposes is mind blowing, uh, and it's very exciting to me because I personally think. Not that I'm trying to create competition for you guys, but
5: <laughs>
0: if possible, everybody should be mining Bitcoin using nuclear energy. Why wouldn't you do that? Seems like such a no-brainer to me.
11: Yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah, it's a very intuitive concept to us as well, and uh, we, you know when we had the opportunity, you know, pairing a a load that can and wants to run 24 hours a day, you know, every day of the year with a baseload zero carbon uh, fuel source. um, And you can kind of then pair that baseload demand with kind of this baseload production um, to deliver and kind of get the benefit of the lowest cost of power is, you know, is extremely compelling. And so, um, you know, part of the reason that we're located, you know, adjacent, directly adjacent to a nuclear power plant, pulling power directly from that power plant is, our ability to be that kind of baseload. And if you look at kind of what's happened in the the energy sector more broadly, um, these baseload facilities that used to run, you know, 80, 90% of the time are now running less than that given the significant penetration of intermittent resources, you know, kind of wind and solar facilities. And so, you know, and those are zero marginal cost products. And so when they're there, they kind of are the first to get dispatched and they're the lowest cost because they you know have zero marginal cost. And so that kind of pushes the other generators that have a um, variable cost to produce power, you know, off kind of out. And so again, bringing in a, a base load load to to the facility was very uh, important to that nuclear operator as well. And so yeah, so we see a tremendous benefit um, in kind of again pairing these these loads called Bitcoin mining that are extremely responsive with with kind of that supply side. And that's a theme that's kind of more broadly. Um, reflective of how we think about, you know, Bitcoin mining in general as well. You know, as you see this whole transition that's occurring in the energy space, um, you know, the need for responsive loads is is critical to the continued decarbonization uh, and transition of the grid. So, um, so we can agree with you more on the importance and value of nuclear power in the uh, Bitcoin mining space.
0: Yeah, it's very exciting stuff. So for those of you who don't know, Nazr Khan is co-founder, chief operating officer at Tara Wolf, um, and also serves on on the board there and is basically head of business strategy, responsible for hardware, site evaluation, infrastructure build out, et cetera. One thing I wanted to talk to you about is that one of the areas that bitcoin miner the, so there's a saying that miners basically go to the wherever the lowest cost of energy is it's 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 essentially whoever is most efficient at utilizing that energy making sure the costs are the lowest it, it's an efficiency game with you guys like miners is like you have to be some of the the best managers of efficient business systems in my opinion uh, of, of many different businesses that are out there. And you have so many variables that you have to deal with. So I heard from one person who I know who's dropping um, these containers uh, full of miners onto oil pads and they're using the the gas that, that would have been flared. Mm-hmm. And he's saying his costs are... are lower than two cents now that's just for the energy like what are the other variables there that if you have a steady cost of around two cents uh at scale like how how does that work in in terms of profitability for you guys i know that's probably a a complex question but can you unpack it a little bit for us
11: sure sure um as We think about the mining of Bitcoin, you know, there's variables, I say that kind of we can control and there's a number of variables we do not control. And the variables that we control are what is the cost of energy that we're procuring? um, And that's dependent upon where you're locating and how you're integrating kind of that load to where you're locating. There's the cost of operations. How many people does it take to maintain and kind of efficiently run those operations um, and they're in that in that um, bucket there is scale you know if you've got a container um, it's not completely linear linear to, to then have
8: operational costs
11: um and, and I think then, we
0: lost you there for a second. You said oh, if you have a container.
11: Yeah, so if you have one container, and you've got fifty containers. You know, there is some benefit of scale on the operational costs in running that facility. Um, so that's kind of the second bucket of costs. Is again, you've got your energy costs, you've got your operational costs, and then the environment that you you are running in. Um, you know, container building hot environment, cold environment, dusty environment, um, then there's a you know, uh cost associated with the ongoing maintenance of the miners as well. Right. So I'd like to kind of think about it in three separate buckets. Um, and your investment decisions have an impact on all of those right again, where you're locating, what you're building, um, and the scale that you're building at have impacts on that. And so your cost of energy typically again typically and these are kind of rough rough numbers is you know usually it's anywhere from you know seventy to eighty percent of your overall production cost right so energy is kind of the biggest and most important factor uh, associated with you know what is your total production cost and those other buckets of kind of labor and maintenance and other miscellaneous expenses kind of cover the remaining twenty to thirty percent and so when you see folks um, you know going to the the um, oil patches and kind of picking up flared gas and they've got a a fairly low cost of, uh, fuel and power because again, they're effectively taking stranded reserves. You know, they're leveraging off the fact that they've got a really low cost of power or energy because they're picking up stranded energy and, you know, their operational cost may be slightly higher given that, you know, the scale may not be, um, as big as just kind of having, you know, hundred megawatts of operations in one place. But, you know, they, they, again, they probably more than make up for it with that, with that lower cost of power. Um, the approach that we've taken, you know, coming from a power background is we think we can kind of get, you know, we've got a two cent fixed price deal at our, our nuclear facility in Pennsylvania. Uh, we're at, you know, three and a half cents or below three and a half cents all in in our facilities in New York. And so we've taken the view that, you know, kind of on a blended basis, um, you know, our cost of power can be pretty effective. If we're able to locate our loads properly. And then we also get the benefits of scale on the operational side. So, um, you know, every month we're putting out what our production costs are, um, just so, you know, kind of the market can see where we're coming out. I think the most recent monthly report, we're somewhere around $9,000, you know, our our production costs, you know, for every BTC that that, that we produced in the month of of June. So, those are just a few of the buckets involved with operations. And to your earlier point, each one of those, right, there's a tremendous amount of management around making sure that we are efficiently optimizing every one of those things to kind of deliver that lowest cost of production, uh, for, for BTC.
0: Yeah. That's kind of what I was curious about because this gentleman was, who was telling me that they're dropping these hash huts essentially. I mean, if, if you're dropping a container, you can only put so many miners in there. If you have a data center that's environmentally controlled, like, just costs, maintenance, everything just seems like it would be so much lower. You guys had an announcement uh, that just came out this morning, this morning. I believe you guys sent it out uh, that you guys purchased 18,500 J X uh, XP miners from Bitmain. Like, I mean, that would be a lot of shuts, right? Like your cost would be going absolutely straight up in terms of all those different locations maintenance travel etc the environment is not probably as as well controlled there's there's so many of those factors you want to talk a little bit about this announcement you guys just made
11: sure yeah as you said this morning uh we announced uh a purchase of 18,500 of the latest generation miners from Bitmain. Um there are 151 terahash units, uh, 21 joules per terahash. Um our overall fleet efficiency, you know, with this purchase will our overall fleet efficiency will be 25 um, and a half joules per terahash across the entire fleet, which we think is you know very important as we kind of get closer to the halving and, and get through the halving. Um, we're going to house those miners uh, at a uh, 43 megawatt uh, building that we have already started construction on. The capital for that building is largely funded already um, that will deliver prior to year-end. So the team at, uh, at our site in upstate New York is in full swing. Getting that building up and going, 43 megawatts will house um, about 13,500 of those miners, um, and then we have uh, 5,000 slots opening up in an existing building as well. So uh, combined, that will get our operational exa hash up to 7.9 uh, by year end. And as I said, you know what's most important to me is that the overall efficiency of that fleet is 25 and a half joules per tera hash. Um, for that fleet and, you know and that's another big component right? as we think about you know what's your overall production cost you know there's all these cost items what's your cost of energy what's the cost of labor what's the cost of maintenance but it's also you know how efficient are your miners in converting energy into hash and and we think you know we've got one of the lowest um joules per tera hash kind of fleets out there and so we're you know we're extremely excited um bitmain's been a great partner of ours and you know we're happy to be the very first customer putting kind of a large scale order you know for this for this latest generation equipment
0: all right switching gears a little bit and then what i'd like to do is give you an opportunity to hit any major topics you'd like to hit as well uh and then maybe open it up for questions if you're okay for okay with that and just let people on the panel or in the audience or whatever ask questions but one thing that um, has been on my mind a lot over the last couple of years is that if you if you look at quality of life, quality of life for human beings is closely tied, closely correlated to energy production. Like the better energy production and distribution you have for people, the better quality of life. I personally have been in countries and see, seen people living in you know corrugated tin uh habitats with dirt floors single light bulb no running water none of that kind of stuff no access to the internet etc and i and i really believe that if if humanity is to pr- prosper and not just in western developed nations but power generation is really important and i'm a huge fan of nuclear it it seems to me that for a, a large part of my adult life, there's just been a, a nonstop campaign uh, about how horrible nuclear energy is. I, I was curious, what I wanted to ask you about that is, do you find yourself spending a lot of your time explaining why nuclear energy is not bad? Or is that not something you run into with what you do?
6: Um,
11: you have those uh that have their views, uh, that may have negative views with respect to nuclear power. Um, we come from the power space. And what I tell people is when you think about the grid and how it operates and how, as you said, you know, kind of the prosperity is tied to you know, the availability and use of, of energy, you know, we wake up every morning and flip a light switch and we don't think twice that the light won't come on. And, and if it does, you know, for five or 10 minutes, you know, we're kind of you know bent out of shape. And so when you think about the underlying operation of the grid and how that happens, where hundreds of millions of people a day in this country can just kind of wake up and flip a switch whenever they want and have the electricity delivered to them, you know, there's there's a very complex and complicated system that supports all that. And when you think about how can that, how is that maintained and how does that continue to be delivered, there's no one uh, way for that to happen you know you can't just say well, it's only going to be with wind or solar or batteries or coal or gas or pick take your pick right there's no single solution to be able to deliver the electricity that we all need when we want it you know on demand without any issues whatsoever and so i mean it like i said it's literally a a, a you know close to a miracle that every single day you know without fail you know the the grid operates in the way that it does and you know, that's a testament to you know the men and women, you know, around the country and around the world, you know, who run these grids for us um, to deliver that. And and so I think, again, when you think about how that happens, you have to be, you have to have a, a nuanced understanding that there is no single way to deliver that. And nuclear is a part of that equation. And, you know, in, in different parts of the country, nuclear is a very meaningful part of that equation. On some parts, you know, some, some, some um, regional operating zones, you know, nuclear power can be, you know, 15, 20, 25% of the total kilowatt hours of electricity that are delivered. And I think the people that really understand, again, how complicated it is, um, see nuclear power and the attributes that it's both carbon-free as well as kind of a baseload are unique attributes as we think about how do we decarbonize the supply stack. And so we as Terror Wolf, always say we're zero-carbon miners because I think, again, the end goal for the grid is is to produce power, you know, with zero carbon emissions. And so again, if you want to put a label of green on it, you can kind of put a label of green on it. If you want to say solar or wind or battery, you can put any label you want on it, but fundamentally underlying that is this ability to produce electricity that we all consume without emitting kind of any incremental carbon um, or any carbon associated with that. And so if again, you have that purview of how do we make this grid work and how do we transition to that point in time Nuclear, you know, we believe is a kind of a fundamental component to that. And I think you're seeing that view also taking hold more broadly. Um, I mean, just, just last year, late last year, um, you know, there was the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed, which had a federal uh, program that supports, you know, kind of the operation of nuclear facilities. Right. So I think even from, you know, kind of a government perspective, um, we've got a Democratic president, you know, that kind of led this initiative. So even from from that perspective, there is a recognition that nuclear power is critical to the stability and the transition of the grid. And so, again, I think, you know, some of that noise that may have existed around nuclear, you know, five or seven years ago, even that has started to change. And again, we're seeing it both at the federal level as well as the number of states, you know, the state of New York, the state of um, Ohio, the state of Pennsylvania, the state of Illinois, have also introduced state level programs to support the production of nuclear power as well um so i think you know again that 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 sentiment is shifting and, it, and again it really comes down to when you think about how do we transition this grid to completely decarbonize you know it's very difficult to deal without this this resource called nuclear power which is baseload all
0: right one last question i'm gonna let wicked go and if uh you have any other topics that you want to hit uh welcome to do that as well. So this morning I was looking at uh the hash rate and it's pretty high. Uh last uh average for the last week is over 450 exahash, which is huge. You know, when I think about guys like yourself and I think about the mining industry, sometimes I think these guys are actually some of the most optimistic and bullish people in the entire industry because <laughs> you've got this massive amount of hash rate. And you guys are still installing miners. Like, uh, what are you most excited about? Like, what drives this thesis for you guys? Why are you so optimistic? I mean, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but clearly you guys are installing and you're building. So, like, why?
11: Yeah. So uh, I'll give you kind of start at a a high level and then work down to, you know, specifically at at, at Terrell, how I think about it. Um, As you said, the hash rate keeps ticking up. Um, and I expect that to continue through the halving. Um, if you look at a lot of forecasts, people say that, you know, the hash rate is going to drop meaningfully, you know, at the halving, I actually don't buy that. Um, you know, there's all of the equipment that's out there and all of the infrastructure that's running the day before the halving will still be there. All of that's a sunk cost and, um, granted, in the immediate aftermath of the having, you know, the economics dramatically change, and some of that production may not be um, marginally um, cash flow positive that day. But you know, in that day, in that week, you know, in that month, I don't see anyone just kind of turning the machines off because you know, on that day, they're you know, they're underwater a little bit. So we have this view that you know, the hash rate is growing and will likely kind of, you know, continue to grow, you know, as we get towards the having, and we do not expect a significant drop in the hash rate, you know, post the having. So, which leads to your, your question, which is, is like, if you take that view, why are you continuing to add to that hash rate knowing that, you know, your economics are going to get cut in half, um, you know, within, within nine months here. Um, Our view really comes from the fact that we think we are at the bottom of that curve. You know, whether you look at our cost of power, whether you look at our operational costs and the scale we have, or whether you look at the efficiency of the fleet of miners that we have, we think we are at the very low end of that. And so whether Bitcoin bounces around here between 20 and 30,000 or Bitcoin, you know, takes a leg up and goes to 40, 50 or even higher, we think our X to hash our production capacity is going to make money you know we're firm believers in the Bitcoin network that's not going anywhere um, and so the hash rate may be high the hash rate may be low but we believe that our hash our access hash our production capacity will always make money um, and that's why you know we continue to kind of invest in the business is mm. if you know if that hash rate um, continues to grow you know we're going to be making money if the price of Bitcoin, takes a leg up to, to increase profitability for space overall. That's great news for us. And if the price of Bitcoin flatlines comes down a little bit, it's going to squeeze out a number of people um, in terms of their profitability, and it will still be there kind of you know, ticking away and, and making money. So our 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 confidence in kind of continuing to invest in the business and our excitement about continuing to build out our capacity really comes from the fact that we believe on all fronts, we've kind of got the most efficient fleet with the lowest cost of power, and it's all coming from zero carbon energy sources. So we think, you know, again, irrespective of which way the market goes, we're going to be profitable and, and generating kind of free cash flow for the business. And so that's where, and again, if you put that against the backdrop of, you know, we can we remain firm believers in the value of Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network, you know, we are a, you know, without Bitcoin mining, there is no Bitcoin. And so we believe, you know, we're providing a fundamental service to this extremely valuable commodity while also playing this, this thing called the energy transition and providing services back to the grid. So you put all those together, we think, you know, we're very well positioned and, you know, again, irrespective of which way the market goes, we think we'll, we'll do all right. And that's where our confidence comes from. And again, we don't think we're taking a directional view per se. We're taking the view that our capacity and our production costs are so competitive that you know we're gonna be okay, um, irrespective of kind of which which way things go.
0: Man, Nazar, that was a great explanation. So that uh that actually puts teeth behind kind of what I've I've felt might be going on there. It seems incredibly Darwinian, like the Agoge, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 10, ten large-scale miners enter and only a handful leave, right? <laughs> it's like whoever is going to be the most efficient. And it's just um, it's very interesting to observe. All right. Is there any other major topics that you want to hit that we haven't covered? Uh, go ahead and do that. And then we'll open it up for questions if you're okay with that.
11: Sure. Yeah. I just, just another thing is, you know, we are a Bitcoin miner. And so, obviously, Bitcoin is an important A part of of the story and of of, of what we do, Um, but I just want to also make sure that people you know kind of think about and recognize that this Bitcoin mining is a load. Effectively, we you know we're a converter of electricity, right? We're taking energy in, we're running it through an ASIC and putting hash out. And again, we can talk about you know the value of the hash, you know, and the network size and the price of Bitcoin, but we are a converter, Um, and As a converter and as a, I I term these, these Bitcoin mining loads as energy sinks, right? We should not enter into a place thinking that we should be supplied with power all the time. We should enter into kind of a node or wherever we're locating these loads, thinking of ourselves as an energy sink. And what does that mean? That just means that if you think about how the energy kind of grid is constructed, there's a tremendous amount of fixed costs in the system. Um, all your transmission lines is a fixed cost. And once you build it, it's there. And it's all about system utilization. Um, power plants themselves, it's all about system utilization, right? So the more you can utilize that, that item that you've spent kind of a fixed amount of capital for um, and the more units you have to amortize it against, the lower the cost is. And so fundamental to Bitcoin mining is this concept that you know we are increasing system utilization and therefore decreasing the cost in the system if done properly, and so you are both kind of playing Bitcoin mining and kind of the Bitcoin market for sure, but you're also playing this this kind of trend, energy transition that's occurring, and you know there are a number of forecasts out there that talk about you know kind of how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost to decarbonize the grid, and I believe all of those numbers are are, are wildly kind of overstated. Um, And the reason for that is is people are just extrapolating the world as it is today and just kind of going out in time and they're extrapolating out and saying you have to build more stuff. And if you build more stuff, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a long time. What they're not getting is, is that as you introduce loads that can be responsive and that can be energy sinks like Bitcoin mining, you can increase system utilization, therefore decrease cost, and therefore also just accelerate the timeline to kind of decarbonize. And so, again... You're both playing Bitcoin mining, you know, and Bitcoin for sure um, when, you're, when you're thinking about investing in tarot. but you're also taking a very, um, I think, strong view on the timeline and the cost to decarbonize the grid and the role that these loads are going to kind of play within that. And so that's an important factor. And, you know, I like to say to people, any Bitcoin miner that's not generating, you know, 30% of its revenue from not mining Bitcoin uh, two, three years from today won't survive and what does that mean that just means that you know you've effectively priced yourself out of the market because your load is not positioned as a sink you just want power when you want it you're not providing any services back to the grid you're not going to be competitive and so you know we have both this focus intense focus internally on making sure every miner is running getting the most out of the miners making sure the environments that they're operating in are at, you know as clean and pristine as possible But also thinking about how our loads integrate back into the grid and making sure that our loads are as responsive as possible and providing as many service as we can back to that grid to also kind of provide a service externally. Um, And again, that translates into just effectively a lower cost of power. So. You know, it's a lot of, you know, it's a a lot of words there, but I just, you know, I think I want to make sure that people have an understanding that, again, you know, I think there are two kind of fundamental plays here, both Bitcoin, but also just kind of the energy infrastructure and the transition that's occurring.
0: Okay, fantastic. So we have about 15 minutes left in the show. Let's open it up for questions. If you're in the audience and you would like to come up and ask a question, go ahead and request. Will be kind to you. Also, if you want to do it in Tux, you could do it in our Telegram group. That's t.me forward slash, forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. Also, for those of you who listen to this on the podcast later, again, you can catch the links, etc., uh, for the show in t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. Go ahead, Wicked.
6: Cool. um Yes, yeah, so I was wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit about. Um, what it is that TerraWolf is specifically doing to lower your efficiency of your suite of miners? Um, you said it was twenty five point five joules per terahash. hash. Are you guys doing anything, kind of in addition to just getting the, the the newest miners? Are you like doing anything with your mining network protocol communications between miners? Uh, you know, uh, immersion mining. I don't know anything like that. Yeah,
11: yeah. So we 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 are doing a number of different things, and so um, the your machine has a nameplate um, efficiency. And so, you know, the the, the most rece- most recent machines we're buying have a nameplate efficiency of 21 twenty one and a half joules per 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 terash. Um, that requires a fixed set of parameters in which you can kind of attain that efficiency. You know there's a certain temperature um, um, certain amount of power that's being delivered um, to the to to the miner itself um, how it you know sits on a rack in kind of a broader operating environment and so there's a number of parameters again that kind of get you to that and people talk a lot about kind of you know overclocking and underclocking and other ways to kind of squeeze out you know more hash rate um, with similar or uh, kind of greater kind of power power coming in and so we do spend a lot of time thinking about um, those things. And in particular, we spend a lot of time thinking about underclocking. And and, and the reason that we think about underclocking, right, is is that if, you know, for example, our load in upstate New York, uh, we've got a 115 megawatts or so of total capacity. Um, right now, we're in the middle of summer. July and August, you know, are two of the peak months, right? So kind of July and August and January and February are the peak demand months in, in, in upstate New York. And so in these peak months typically again we are energy sinks and so we will have signals from the grid that the grid is you know hitting peak demand and therefore our demand should be lowered and so whether that's one megawatt or 100 megawatts again depends upon the conditions and so we spend quite a bit of time in making sure that as we're bringing that load down that we maintain that efficiency of the miner right so as we underclock um, that we can continue to kind of get the efficient nameplate efficiency of the miner, if not even better. And so there's both kind of off the shelf firmware that you know Bitmain and other OEMs provide. And there's also kind of customized solutions that exist in, in, in the space. And so there's a number of providers that are working with companies in helping them kind of achieve that goal. And again, the holy grail there is, is if we can kind of underclock in a way that we actually, you know, make our miners more efficient when we're doing so. So again, now we're not only getting the benefit of providing a service back to the grid, but we're also then, you know, doing so in a way that the efficiency of our fleet is equal to, if not better than it would be kind of at um, full operating capacity. And so there's quite a bit of work that that goes around that, you know, historically people have talked a lot about overclocking um, and, we spend less time on that because again, our, our approach really is, is that we've got this, this, this load, um, again, I'll kind of go back to our our site in upstate New York, 115 megawatts or so wants is willing and able to consume 115 megawatts, you know, at, at all times. And we find more value in being able to kind of curtail down and kind of provide, you know, um, incremental load back to the grid than to kind of consume more um, energy. But we do spend some time on overclocking as well. But again, I think, you know, philosophically, you know, we see a lot more value in, in underclocking. Um, we haven't spent a ton of time on Immersion. So uh, I know there's a lot of people out there trying to kind of, you know, do Immersion on a mass scale. and. We've had discussions with a number of folks and I'm, you know, I'm waiting for a robust mass scale application to be available. Um, We haven't quite seen that. And the other benefit that we have is, is that, you know, both of our sites are in what I'll call more moderate temperatures. And so from a climate perspective, you know, there's four or five months of the year where, you know, immersion, you know, may or may not have that much of an impact. It's pretty cool outside, if not really cold. Which is a good environment to operate in, and so so the times that that you know kind of the immersion can really pay off are more limited than they may be in a place like Texas, where you have kind of you know you know hotter environments, you know kind of throughout the year, and even you know particularly in the summer, where you know the last couple weeks in Texas have been over 100 degrees, you know consistently, and so we haven't really spent that much time on immersion for those reasons. So again, you know we do spend you know quite a bit of time, and and if you look at our monthly operating results, you know plate and I urge you to kind of pay particular attention to, again, our ability to, you know, translate that X hash that we have in, in, into BTC. And all of that really kind of comes around how efficiently are we utilizing the machines that we have and being able to kind of capture the full benefit of them and creating the BTC that that, that comes off of that.
0: Okay. If no follow-up questions, let's go with Ferrick Good morning.
12: Good morning. Good morning. Um, so you guys like, I have like a little bit of feedback on the language. I understand why you guys like to say you're an energy sink, but I feel like it's not a truly um, accurate description of what the benefits of Bitcoin mining actually does bring to a utility and to the grid at at large. You're basically functioning as a reverse peaker. Uh, power plant in a sense, where you're providing a demand generation of sorts that allows every utility to only build base load that runs 24-7. If they have enough Bitcoin miners on their grid to just take up that excess load in between the peak demand and the low point, then they never need to actually run peaker plants. They can just they can be peak profitability, twenty four seven with their base load, something that has never been able to be done before. And to just kind of use the language of being an energy sink, I don't think accurately depicts that opportunity. Because um, just, just think of that, right? Yeah. They never have to search for demand on their grid ever again they don't need that extra logistics of a diesel peaker plant to come online in an emergency. They just need to turn down what I would say is a reverse demand generator.
11: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, a good point. And I think if we were having this discussion 15 or 20 years ago, I think it'd be kind of spot on. And what's changed, right. Is if you think about the supply side and how that's, um, evolving, um, no one is really looking. If you pull up any you know grid and look of the new capacity that's being proposed to be added to the grid, I would say ninety percent plus of it is intermittent resources. You know, kind of wind and solar, um, and so those wind and solar plants do are not dispatchable resources, and so they're there when they're there, and the last thing that you want to do with a wind and solar plant is curtail it when it can generate electricity. Um, you know, it's all of that cost to build that wind and solar facilities on the front end. It's a sunk cost. And now any kind of kilowatt hour of electricity it can generate, you want to be able to use it. And so you don't want to have to curtail it. Um, and so again, in California, you know, there's this, 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 this duck curve idea. I don't know if you, you know, ran across this concept where, when the solar comes on, you know, basically pushes everything, all other forms of generation off um, and pushes prices down low because you don't want to kind of curtail that solar, you don't want to have to kind of build a battery to kind of capture that energy and then release it at, at some point in time because that's just another layer of cost. And so I generally agree with you that you know in a system of dispatchable resources. If you can then have a load that can be responsive and effectively be a plug and just, you know, be able to run those dispatchable resources on a baseline basis, which are the, are the most efficient way they can run um, and kind of lowest cost, um, I agree. The, the, the nuance I, I'd, I'd like you to kind of, kind of think about is again, as the grid evolves and as we have more and more intermittent resources that come online and that just, again, want to run, they're there when they're there and they're not there when they're not there, you know, then you can have these large swings. Um, And again, just kind of, you know, I'll use the example of California. You have a massive swing in the generation profile that occurs, you know, from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., right? Because 2 p.m. solar is kind of, you know, hitting its full stride. Um, It's pushing all other forms of generation off. And then it basically falls off a cliff, right? As you kind of get, you know, towards sunset and um, the nighttime, that solar generation falls off of a cliff. And so, you have this this significant vol- intraday volatility um, that again these responsive loads and again I use the term energy sinks and maybe there's a better um, kind of term that you, you know you could kind of help help us with but you know I think of it as an energy sink because again within that volatility again both you know kind of seasonal but especially kind of intraday volatility um, these loads that can be very responsive to those price signals do provide a a valuable resource um and again i don't i don't disagree with your concept this reverse speaker concept but again as just the grid is transitioning and as the form of supply is changing i think the the way we think about these loads is also um, changing a bit as well
12: well i i would push back and say that what you're describing is grid destruction based off of crony capitalism which, because without subsidies, there is no reason for utilities to actually invest that shitty intermittent resource, which causes a lot of harm to grid stability, as well as the fact that it being given priority in all of the markets has damaged base load suppliers of electricity, too, making them not able to be profitable during those surges in electricity generation despite there being no penalty for the intermittency of the other right. ones. So I personally don't like how the Bitcoin community has curtailed all of its narrative to go along with the joke that is wind and solar. In an ideal grid situation right now, because of Bitcoin, you could literally do the entire Bitcoin with nuclear power and Bitcoin miners to help with load flexibility, that's all you really need, and hydro and whatever else, just because if you have other base load resources, that is what you might use them. But right now, the wind dollar does not help the grid at
0: all. Eric, you're yeah, a come- little bit in the matrix.
11: <laughs> yeah, I, I got most of what you said, Eric, and I think just two points. Um, one is, your critique about market structures and how market structures are supporting or incentivizing or disincentivizing different forms of generation, um, is, 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 is correct. And, uh, you know, I, I tell people that the business of selling wholesale el- electricity, um, has significantly changed what for 20 years, we basically, produced power at X and tried to sell at X plus something to make a margin. Um, And that business has fundamentally changed. And a lot of it comes from the regulatory market constructs that have evolved and changed over time. And so um, I think your critique that the market structure has evolved and it has promoted a certain form of generation and kind of disincentivized uh, other types of generation is, is, is accurate. Um, If, that being said, if you look at where our sites are, um, we are next to we are fed directly from a baseload nuclear facility, um, and we're 25 miles in Pennsylvania. And in upstate New York, we're 25 miles away from the largest hydroelectric facility in the state of New York, and that's not by coincidence either. And the reason again is is kind of it fits more within your construct of the world is you have these baseload resources, you know, the demand profile of the system kind of goes up and down and you, if you have a responsive load. It can kind of fill that gap and it can kind of increase system utilization and therefore drive down costs for everyone else. And so kind of your view of the world on where it should look like everywhere is closer to what we are doing at our two sites. Um, so um, I think, you know, your assessment of where it can be the most, efficient um in terms of the kind of production and the kind of cost of electricity again it's not by coincidence that we sit um close to baseload zero carbon resources at both of our sites
0: all right we are pretty much done with the show we're we're just about out of time nazar i want to thank you for being here this has been a great discussion i've learned a lot so really appreciate your time um, and look forward to having you guys back again in the future for another update. Wanted to give you an opportunity to make some closing comments or plug anything you like uh, before we wrap up here.
11: Yeah. Well, th- thank, thank you for, for having us again. And uh, um, yeah, we're, we're excited. I think, you know, your earlier question, you know, we made a big announcement this morning. Uh, the entire team's extremely excited about where we are. Uh, you know, we've been hard at work the last couple of years and in, in, in getting the infrastructure up and going. And so, would urge everyone to kind of check out our videos online and to see our facilities. But, um, but yeah, we got, a this, this next leg to come, we're super excited about it. Um, and again, we think, you know, on all the things that matter, you know, in terms of cost, of electricity, efficiency of the fleet operations, um, the team is, has done a, a tremendous job and, you know, every one of those people there, um, at those sites is kind of the backbone of this company. And so, um, they don't get enough credit and so i'd like to kind of give a special shout out to them as well but uh but yeah thank you for having having us again and yeah we'd love to come back um you know in, in, a, in a month or two and, and catch up again um I really enjoyed the discussion as well
0: fantastic thanks again for being here all right that's pretty much it tomorrow on cafe bitcoin we've got tora dev i'm going to be do, i'm going to be here for the first hour and then heading out after that We'll be traveling over the next uh, few days, so I will not be here for the the Thursday show um, and back as usual next week. Of course, we're going to be doing Swan Private Macro on Friday as usual. All right, that's it. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple if you cannot catch the live show. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, sponsor of the show, my crew and Peter Sass for Life, Wicked, producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Danzik, work with Swan, want to know more, shoot me DM. Thanks again to Nazar for being here, all the speakers who come on here on the regular every single day, plus our regular crew, our regular listeners, people who come up here and teach people about this bright orange feature on their own time. Appreciate you guys, and I admire that. This is what we call getting on the mission. Love you guys. Everybody have a great day today. Get out there and crush it.